who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you, because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors, to best-selling authors, and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know, You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello to all my lovely listeners. How are we all doing this week? I am again, Madigan, just here by myself, staring at a computer screen at my garage band and notes instead of at the beautiful Keegan Winfield's face. And it's so sad. I wish I had my friend to talk to. Well, I really hope that everybody is at least tolerating just having me by myself <laughs> for this month so far. I hope everybody's been enjoying the episodes. I, for one, really, really enjoyed researching Valerie Solanas and talking about her. It was interesting. However, I swore that I had mentioned it like a hundred times to Max that I was going to be talking about Valerie Solanas. And it wasn't until he saw the page's Instagram post about what our episode was. And he's like, you didn't tell me. I guess I did. I totally told you multiple times. And he's he had like a lot of opinions on it. And he just looked at me and he was like, you didn't say that she's like, good, right? And I'm like, no, not at all. I was, I'm not like, all hail Valerie Solanus, radical feminist icon. No, not at all. Um, we did, however, get a comment on the photo on our Instagram that made a lot of sense to me. And it's really how I feel about her as a whole is somebody just said that, you know, hearing her whole story makes them wonder if she would have turned out differently had she had a different upbringing in childhood. And I think that's a really fascinating, I mean, that's always been the thing about psychology that fascinates me. I really love to go back into the things in my life uh, that I feel are, you know, triggers or things that I wasn't able to work through as a kid and think about them now as an adult. That's been a really major part of therapy for me as an adult. So I am totally a believer in, you know, past traumas affecting who we become as adults. Then again, you know, like I said, abuse doesn't equal 
the manifesto and the shooting and all of those things. She was a paranoid schizophrenic. She had other issues. She, yeah, she's definitely a tragic, tragic, fascinating character. Definitely not one to be idolized, though, but kind of a fun feminist character. Like, it would be cool to be Valerie Solanas for Halloween, but I don't think anybody would really understand. And the only way you could do that is if you had like a couple's costume with Andy Warhol and that would just be really unsettling and not cool. So I don't suggest that you do that. So for everybody in the U.S., you will know that this week was Amy Coney Barrett's hearing in front of the Senate. So it went on, I believe, yeah, it would have been Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I am recording Thursday evening. It finished up today. And there is one thing in particular about Barrett that I didn't know a whole lot about that I don't know if you all would know a lot about. So I feel it's important to discuss. She is a judge who believes in something called originalism. So the term was coined in the 1980s to describe a judicial philosophy focusing on the text of the Constitution and the founding fathers' intentions resolving legal disputes. So let's think about this for a second. Let's all think about a world, let's think of 2020, but run by our founding fathers. For those of you who have seen Hamilton, it's quite a shocking image. Um, But yeah, so originalists, judges and religious people believe that the exact text and the way that the Constitution was written is exactly how the law should be upheld. So Barrett herself said of originalism, so in English, that means that I interpret the Constitution as law, that I interpret its text as text and understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. So that meaning doesn't change over time. And it's not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it. Okay, let's talk about that for just a second. So while on one hand, it's comforting because she's like, I'm not going to put my own policy views into the cases that I see on the bench, which you're like, okay, so you are part of a Catholic cult. Uh, probably, you know, I'm glad that, you know, you're at least telling me that you're not going to like impose your policies. Like we all know it's not true. Like you're totally going to do that. But like, at least you're saying it. But it's really upsetting to just see her honing in on the fact that she's saying that the meaning of the Constitution doesn't change over time. She is saying a judge must apply the laws as written. Judges are not policymakers, and they must be resolute in setting aside any political views they might hold. So she mentions her mentor, Supreme Court Judge Antonin Scalia, all the time, like name drops that guy like crazy. And he also follows this approach. So let's talk a little bit about the opposite of the originalist approach, and that is the judicial approach, which is sometimes referred to as the living constitution, loose construction, modernism, or by Amy Coney Barrett and critics, they call them activist judges, which I'm sure if you've caught any of the hearing this week, or if you've read any news, or if you've heard anything about Barrett, um, any quotes by her, you've probably heard her uh, referring to activist judges at some point. What they call activist judges. I kind of love that. Like, I want to reclaim that. I would love, like, I would call RBG an activist judge, totally. And she was. So 
Activist judges consider the Constitution as a living, changing document that must encompass the society's changing values. So this actually brought up another really interesting thought for me earlier, because I know that Amy Coney Barrett is very, very religious and very Catholic, and that is something that I have some knowledge on. Um, And Catholicism takes the Bible so literally. So for those of you that might not remember from past episodes, I went to a middle school that still gave Latin masses. Um, I had been an altar server at my elementary school. I was no longer allowed to be an altar server because I was a girl. Uh, It was a very, very like, I can't remember what they called it. My mom is like screaming it through the podcast right now. There was like a time that they changed everything away from Latin to using English in America and things like that. But anyways, so it reminds me very much of that, of keeping on to these like really, really old school by the books traditions that just don't make sense in modern society. Like that's the thing. Whenever I talk or want to talk to somebody or do talk to somebody about religion, it's just that I feel that, you know, as the times change and as we learn and grow as people, our laws should do the same thing. So by her saying that she isn't a policymaker and things like that, while I'm not an expert, I suppose that might be true, but I don't trust this group of bigoted, sexist, racist assholes on the bench to make good decisions for me. I just don't. And if we were to really just stop and take a look at this whole situation, it's just such a fucking oxymoron. The Constitution didn't even give women full citizenship rights. I doubt they would be okay with her sitting on the Supreme Court. Like, it's such a crock of shit. It drives me crazy. (sighs) Okay. Well, she dodged a shit ton of questions. The Democrats say that she refused to answer over 100 questions, which I always love when they mention that stuff because I'm like, who took that time? Like, That's shady as fuck. All right, let's get into some of the questions she dodged. When she was asked about climate change, this is what she said. She said, I have read things about climate change. I would not say I have firm views on it. Like, really? Like, okay, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a senator. I'm not a judge. I don't know, like, how these hearings are really supposed to go. But it kind of sounded to me like they really did want her opinions on these things. So the fact that she was just answering things like a robot and not like a human was just, like, the most unsettling thing in the world to me. In regard to Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Oberfell v. Hodges, which is the right to same-sex marriage, and D.C. versus Heller, which relates to gun laws, she would not say that they are super precedents because they are subjected to challenges. Barrett describes super precedent as cases that are so well settled that no one calls for them to be overturned. Awesome. I'm literally, so who I know we had listeners that have been telling me to watch Mrs. America. I'm finally watching it. I'm so late to the game, but I'm loving it so much. And so much of this is reminding me <laughs> of that show. Um, it's just, the, if you think about all of our recent rights that we've received, even within the last hundred years, like let's put this into perspective. Just this week, Bernard Cohen, who was the lawyer who won the interracial marriage case in the Supreme Court in 1967 for the loving couple, died this week. Like that's insane. And it was only in 2003 that the Supreme Court judges struck down state sodomy laws that could be used to prosecute same-sex relationships. 
2003. That's 17 years ago. Our progress in this country is slow and it is recent. It is brand fucking new. These amendments are still so important to uphold and Barrett will soon have the capacity to take away minority rights. That is why it is so important to give a shit. But unfortunately, it doesn't really look like Democrats have much of a chance right now. The Senate Judiciary Committee will vote on October 22nd on Barrett's nomination. And unfortunately, Republicans have the full Senate and the Senate Judiciary Committee, meaning that her nomination is likely to pass and move to full Senate for approval. When asked if they would do anything to try to delay the vote or boycott it, uh, Democrats have conceded that they just don't have the numbers to use any of those tactics, even though I guess there are some procedural maneuvers that they could use. They just don't have the strength and numbers to be able to take over the Republicans. But they said that if only some of the 12 Republicans didn't show up to the vote, like so if a few of them didn't show up, then they would boycott it. The date for the final vote in the Senate is likely to happen the week of October 26th, which is only eight days before the election. Okay, so while I was researching the town halls for both Trump and Biden were going on, I know I asked everybody on Instagram to watch Biden's town hall, and I did not technically watch it. I was unable to, but... I was watching CNN as I was doing all of my other notes for tonight. So I was able to get all of the highlights. So I'm going to fill you in on the things that I read on CNN. They had a great, like, not quite minute by minute, but quite a great breakdown. And I'm going to put that link in the show notes. I'm sure there's going to be even more stuff by tomorrow when I upload this. So this is what we have so far. So after, let's talk about Trump's town hall first. All right. After his town hall, CNN called it 20 minutes of contentious live grilling with only himself in the spotlight. They mentioned that he kind of veered away from his typical conservative media rhetoric and started just kind of using more Trump speech again, which probably isn't the best uh, debate strategy, I guess, town hall strategy. I don't know if you would call this a debate, but whatever. Lawyer moderator Savannah Guthrie wouldn't let up on Trump evading questions about his coronavirus diagnosis and whether he was tested on the day of the debate, his stance on white supremacy, his ties to QAnon, and his view on mail-in voting. At one point when responding to one of the moderator's questions, he responded by calling her cute. I haven't seen a video of it yet. I know it's going to piss me off. I don't want to see it. I'll watch it tomorrow. If y'all want to like burn your eyes out, you can look it up right now. When asked whether he had taken a COVID test prior to the first debate, he said, and I'm going to do my best Trump impression here. I mean, I shouldn't say best. I'm going to do a Trump impression here. I don't know. I don't even remember. I test all the time. I can tell you this. After the bait, like, I guess a day or so. I think it was Thursday evening, maybe even late Thursday evening. Uh, I tested positive. That's when I first found out. He was once again asked to specify if he was tested before the debate. And eventually he stated, possibly I did, possibly I didn't. So reassuring. Here's what he said about experiencing the virus. He said, I didn't feel good. I didn't feel strong. I had a little bit of a temperature. I think it was a little bit worse than that, sir. 
After the meeting, Trump claimed that he had denounced white supremacy, not just tonight, but over and over and over again. He said, I denounced white supremacy. I denounced white supremacy for years, but you always start off with the question. You didn't ask Joe Biden whether or not he denounces Antifa. Maybe because Antifa isn't an actual organized group, it's just an ideology. He goes on to say, I denounce these people on the left that are burning down our cities that are run by Democrats. Yeah, Democrats are really scary because that's what happened all the past times we've had Democratic presidents. All of our cities burned down. Sure. All right, let's talk a little bit about Biden's town hall. Let's get a little bit of a palate cleanser after uh, talking about Barrett and Trump. All right, let's talk about Biden. So he pledges to eliminate tax cuts employed by Trump enacted in his first term and insisted again that his tax cuts are aimed at the wealthy, not the middle class. Now, if you listen to last week's episode and maybe even the week before, this was something that's been talked about a lot in the debates about how, you know, Trump is saying that Biden wants to, you know, raise taxes for the middle class. And it's it's just simply not true. And that's something that Trump just goes to again and again. So I'm really glad that Biden was able to take this opportunity to really fully explain himself on what his plans are for taxes. So he goes further saying that most of the change would focus on the corporate tax rate. If you raise corporate tax rate back to 28%, which I hear is a fair tax, he says you'd raise over $1 trillion by the one act. If you made sure that people making over 400 grand paid what they did in the Bush administration, it goes up to another $92 billion. So you can raise a lot of money to be able to invest in the things that make your life easier. And reading that just like gave me a breath of fresh air, like dreaming of a world where I can actually afford quality health care <laughs> sounds amazing. Now, would I like Medicare for all and just like have it free? Yes, but I'll take what I can get at the moment. So Biden's moderator, I believe I mentioned last week, and I'm going to mention it again because every time I mention his name, I think of the Friends episode where the girls are all worried about what they're going to do with their lives in the first season. The moderator is George Stephanopoulos, greatest name ever. So he asked if Biden would still raise corporate taxes during economic struggles, and Biden said, absolutely, which, good, true, they still have more money, you know? If you made that much money, you should still have to pay more taxes. That just makes sense to me. It just makes sense. Biden says what his coronavirus plan would have been had he been president during the time, which again, I'm like, finally, I'm glad that he actually had the opportunity. This is what Biden says about Trump's handling of everything. So Biden said that Trump missed enormous opportunities and kept saying things that weren't true, such as saying the virus would be gone by Easter or be eradicated in the summer heat. Obviously, that didn't happen. One of the other things I was going to discuss tonight is the fact that 35 states right now have had quite an increase in COVID-19 cases. So, ooh, actually, I'm going to go get those notes, I think, after this so I can read it to you because it's pretty upsetting. Sorry, I'll get back to it. Biden says he would have followed the pandemic plan laid out by Obama, sending Americans to China to get the most up-to-date knowledge on the virus. Yes, work with them, learn from their doctors, learn from their experiences so that we could have been the most prepared that we possibly could have been. 
Biden also said there should have been more national standards earlier in the pandemic. Yes. And that the president should be asking Americans to wear a mask. Fucking seriously. Biden said he would have relied on governors to enforce mask use. Biden said he believes the reason Trump didn't want to make us panic about the pandemic was because of the stock market, which I think we all knew. That was the biggest thing that was talked about in the beginning of the pandemic. The economy, the economy, the economy. Even my Republican family was saying this to me, and it was so annoying. So Biden said he, Trump, worried if he talked about how bad this could be unless we took these precautionary actions that, in fact, the market would go down and his barometer of success of the economy is the market. I'm going to go run and get those other notes real quick, and I'll be right back. All right, let's talk a little COVID. I know we just talked COVID briefly with Biden's town hall, but I feel like we haven't really discussed the numbers and such of the pandemic in a really long time. But this was one of the top stories on my Apple News app this morning, first thing when I woke up. So I read the whole thing, and I just want to share a few things with you all to make sure that you are all staying as safe as possible. You know, be aware of the statistics as well as you possibly can be within your state and your region and your area to make sure you're keeping yourself as safe as possible. So here's some new information that I have. As of Wednesday, which is yesterday for me right now, over 59,494 new coronavirus cases were reported just that day. As of Thursday morning, so today for me, we are now averaging 52,345 new cases every day in the United States, which is up by 16% from last week. Dr. Peter Hotez, a professor at Baylor College, says, This is a very ominous sign. I think we're in for a pretty bad fall and winter. See, this was the thing that we were concerned about at the beginning. Like I said earlier, there was this belief that with the warmer, drier months that the virus would just go away or lessen. But it really does seem that the winter months are going to make people more vulnerable to the virus. So here are the states that hit their peak seven-day average of new cases. Alaska, Colorado, Idaho, I'm looking at you, Mom, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Minnesota, Missouri, Keegan, stay safe, Montana, Nebraska, New Mexico, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, South Dakota, Utah, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. So Dr. Fauci says about the virus in the winter that our baseline daily infection is higher in the winter. And I'm not a doctor, so I don't really know what that means. But to me, it sounds like our ability to get infections are much higher in the winter, which is, I feel like, something that I've been told. So let's just go with that. In all, the virus has infected 7.9 million Americans. The CDC projects between 229,000 and 240,000 will have died by November 7th. I'm really sorry. I can't say anything happier right now. I do have one more bit of news for you all, and it's not necessarily happy, um, but it is a happy birthday to George Floyd. On Wednesday, George would have been 47 years 
old. And at the site of his murder in Minneapolis at the corner of 38th Street and Chicago Avenue was adorned with flowers and balloons and other decorations for his birthday. And since his death, that site has been visited by hundreds of weekly grievers and protesters and people wanting to visit that site. And it's crazy. Like, that's an area that I'm I'm so familiar with. And I just posted a picture to my own personal Instagram story of uh, George Floyd getting his own star outside of First Avenue. So in First Avenue in Minneapolis, I was never an adult there, so I never got to go to shows. But like Prince played there all the time. Prince is from Minneapolis and a lot of other really big rock stars. So they would get like the star with their name painted on the wall. And on one of the doors, there's a special red star with George Floyd's name on it. So I wanted to wish him a happy birthday wherever he is. We are still doing what we can to fight for justice for you. You're still in our hearts. You're still in our thoughts. And we're still hurting. You know, our country is really, really hurting. But I also just, it's an important It's another important milestone, I feel, within this year and within the Black Lives Matter movement to look back on where we started with George in May, where we are now. What are the things we could be doing better? What are the things that we need to get back to doing that we were doing at first and we aren't doing anymore? What are ways that we can continually learn about systemic racism and work to fight it in our everyday lives? We shouldn't just have to think about George Floyd And the hundreds and thousands of black Americans that have died by police brutality just on special days of remembrance. This should be something that we should be working toward every single day to be better. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying that I'm always doing my due diligence. But, you know, I think it's good for all of us to constantly be pushing ourselves to be better allies, be better supporters. And of course, that's just me speaking as a white woman. Um... Gosh, what a horrible way to end an episode. I wish I had something happy for you. Oh, um, The Bachelorette is back. I didn't watch it. However, I do love listening to a certain uh, read cap podcast of it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I love knowing all the spoilers. So I guess that's going to be my something happy to think about right now, that I'm going to have some like new, trashy drama show to get into for the next like couple months, right? Okay. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to another episode. I always love what you have to say. So please feel free to reach out to me by email. You can email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can direct message and follow us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. There's a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yanf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. Go ahead and leave a review on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. Everybody seems super Super nice. Um, let's see. Oh, please also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I want to give another big thank you to everybody who has been doing so. Let's keep them coming. That is truly the best possible way that you can help us on this crazy podcast journey. Oh, and last but not least, if you don't already, download that Radio Public app. Listen to us there. It gives us a few pennies. It makes us smile. And who doesn't want to make us smile? All right, that's all I have for you today, everybody. With all of that being said, I encourage you, still weird to say, to rage on. Bye. What does feminism mean to you? 
During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.